I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and in other mediums. Returning to the show today is writer Sean Lewis. He was on the show back in August of last year to talk about coyotes. That was episode number 127, if you'd like to go back and listen to that. He is joined today by artist Hayden Sherman. He's worked on Cold War with Chris Sabella, Mary Shelley Monster Hunter with Adam Glass and Olivia Briggs, both through Aftershock Comics, and John Carter The End with Brian Wood, which was published through Dynamite Entertainment, just to name a few. They are joining me today to talk about their latest series coming up through Image Comics, Thumbs, which comes out on June 5th. The series has been in the works for a couple of years, and I talked to Hayden about that. I also talked to him about his art style and how he has used color to depict technology and its proliferation throughout the book. From a storytelling standpoint, I talked to Sean about the way he writes in not necessarily a linear fashion, leaving some things for the reader to put together and discover. We also talk about social media. Are we giving up too much of our privacy for convenience? And we also talk about virtual reality and its impact on society. This interview is brought to you by The Comic Book Shop at 1855 Marsh Road at the Plaza 3 Shopping Center in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. So we begin my conversation with Sean and Hayden about what's going on in my life and then turning to Sean and asking about what happened with the series Coyotes. Here now on Creator Talks. Sean, welcome back to Creator Talks. Thanks for having me. And Hayden, welcome for the first time. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you both for adjusting your schedules to talk sooner today. I have a lot going on in my life right now. Sean, last time we talked was back in... August, I think, of last year. Now, I'm in Delaware right now. And when I talked to you last year, I wasn't working because my position was eliminated. But I wasn't saying that on the show. So what we've decided to do is, as a family, move from Delaware to Nevada in a couple of weeks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because we love Las Vegas. We've gone there like almost every year as a destination vacation. Not so much for the strip, but for the mountains and the desert and all that stuff around it. The nature, the hiking, we love that. And we hate humidity. And right now, it's raining and we hate the rain. I and mean, that's not going to be a problem. So we're moving out there uh, middle of June. I'm actually going out there early June to get things set up, you know, closing the house, all that stuff. And also, when I went out there with my family a couple of weeks ago to pick out a house... And we had our short list and, you know, did all the research. So it's like, let's go out there and see them and make an offer and be done. I just so happened to find a job posted that was just like the job I had before that was eliminated here in Delaware. And I applied and I interviewed that week. And then I got a job offer this week. So I'm starting a new job. Hey, congratulations. <laughs> Thank That's you. Awesome. That's amazing. It is so bizarre because it all happened at the same time. Like... We picked out a house. Someone was interested in our house, and then the job came up, and it's like all at once. So I have people coming through the house, looking at things, having things corrected and fixed. So that's why my schedule's so nuts, because I have an electrician coming over, and I don't want someone to like flip the switch and then have us <laughs> lose connection and everything. <laughs> anyway, so that's what's going on with me. Let's talk about you. Sean, last time we talked, you have a little one. He's still around. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) 
asking a lot of questions. And he wasn't he saying like, "What's this?" and all this stuff last time we talked. Yeah, he was starting to get into inquisitive. Now he's just kind of like my own personal bully. He just kind of says no to me a lot, and he pushes me a lot. Uh, yeah, he's really contrarian. I mean, he's still really charming, but it's kind of funny. There are moments where I turn to my wife and I'm like, I basically am just raising my own childhood bully. This is a very weird experience. <laughs> my youngest, he's two, uh, and he's doing that. What's this? What's this? Right. That's a, that's a tire valve. The next day, what's this? It's still a tire valve. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, listen, I just want to say I am so sorry that Coyotes ended with issue eight. And we talked about that last time we were here in August. I tried, man. I did my best. (laughs) (laughs) Any comments on that about the cancellation? I mean, would you have done anything differently? Or, hey, you said what you wanted to say and you wouldn't change a thing. It's not actually a cancellation. Like, we never got word from Image. I mean, actually, Eric reached out to me and Caitlin and asked us directly if we wanted to keep going. The offer is still there. I think that we will return to Coyotes at a certain point. Like we started that book like right after I met Hayden. So we've been working on that book for like at least three years. And so Kate was just at a point where she turned to me and she was like, I love this book, but I want to explore some other stories. And so she was like, can we do something else for a little bit and then come back to Coyotes? It sells incredibly well in trade paperback. So I feel like we're going to come back to it as a trade at a certain point. But we just had a point where I have tons of empathy and awe to the artists because it's just so time intensive that Kate was just like, I've lived in this world for three years. I want to explore something else for at least a year before doing this again. And I love working with Kate. So I was just like, all right, man, like you call shots. If you, if you want to draw something else, then I'll write something else. So yeah, I would say it's more on a hiatus area than a cancellation. Oh, that's good. And yeah, that's fair. And you know, she needs to take a break, wants to do something else. And that's the beauty of creator-owned properties. You know, you don't have to keep the IP going, find somebody else and just roll along. You can just say, whoa, time out. We'll come back to it. The audience will come back to it. And you can do what you want to do and keep things fresh rather than having to like push through it just to get it out. Absolutely. And I think also like you just kind of learn as, you know, as you spend this much time working with the same people, which has been really nice. You know, there's a level of honesty that's really great. Kate's a friend of mine now. Like we've traveled around the country signing comics. Like she was able to just turn to me and just go like, let's do something different for a little bit. Is that is that cool? And, you know, I think she was actually nervous that I was going to be mad when she first brought it up. Um, but it was like, yeah, of course, man. Like, we both have been working on this for a long time. If you want to do something else, if there's some images and things she wants to do with her art that's that different, then I'm not going to say no to that. Uh, it's just fun working with her. So it's like, yeah, let's do something else. Hayden, I've uh, talked about you on the show. I've talked to people you've worked with on the show, and now I'm glad to finally have you on the show. And I've read a lot of your stuff. John Carter, The End, Cold War. I had Chris Sabella on. We talked about that. Mary Shelley, Monster Hunter. And, you know, as far as what's going on with you, I don't want to leave you out. So how's the cat doing? Uh, It's doing good. Cat was crawling around on me as we spoke just a second ago. (laughs) (laughs) They're low maintenance. If you want a low maintenance pet, you know, something a little above a goldfish. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> have a little more personality than a goldfish. The one we had, she was so odd, like when it was time to go to bed. And I don't know what it was, an internal clock, but she would just stare at us. 10 o'clock, every night, just seemed to know it. Even whether we were going up that night, it was a weeknight, weekend, just stare at us and then just walk away. Like, okay, I'm going. I'm leaving. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a rapport with your cat? It used to be wake up every morning with cuddled up in my arm. Like, yeah, like I'll wait here until you feed me. But at this point, I think like he's gained trust 
so that he'll just scream a little bit in the morning for some food. And then once he gets it, he's good. He's on his way. He naps while I'm working. And then in the evening, like if it's just me at the apartment, he'll claw up at my leg and stuff for attention. But he does what he pleases. We want to learn a little more about each of you. So I'm going to do it this way. Sean, describe who is Hayden Sherman to you and why <laughs> do you like working with him? You can be honest. It's just us. So. <laughs> Hayden is incredibly infuriating because he's so talented at such a young age. That's definitely part of it. No, Hayden's amazing. It's so serendipitous. I was doing my first book at Image called Saints, and I've wanted to work in comics my entire life and never understood how you got the opportunity to, especially as a writer. I had no clue. Boom Studios had this like Facebook page that was just open for submissions. I think it was a way for them to like just steer people from sending art to their offices. I just was scrolling through, scrolling through, and then there was, there was a group of images that were unlike anything else on the rest of the page. And I'm talking like there had to be hundreds to thousands of samples on this. I was immediately just like, who drew this? Like, what is this? This is so singular. Like it has such a specific voice and point of view to the drawing. And it was Hayden's. And I immediately reached out to him and was like, I want to do a book with you. Do you want to do a book? Like just as a complete stranger on Facebook. And he was really gracious and jumped right in. And I don't know, man, it's been the easiest collaboration I've ever had with somebody. I mean, Hayden and I have yet to meet in person. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, it's one of the weirdest things to me is I'm like, we've actually never met. At least for me, it's like a perfect partnership in a way. It always feels like there's a lot of trust on his end to be like, yeah, just write the story and send it to me and we'll, we'll see what it is. And like we talk about the projects going into them, but when it gets down to the scripts and the, the passing back and forth, I have an amazing amount of trust in Hayden. I feel like we both have a, a weirdly similar interest in what we're trying to do with the books. I know for myself, like I'm really interested in what comics can be, like how much of an experience they can be when you hold it in your hand. And I think Hayden's art and the way that he approaches the work and the layouts and just the, the visualization of the stories, it does everything I would hope to do without us talking about it a lot. So it's just been kind of amazing to me in that way. So Hayden, it's your turn. Describe who Sean is to you and why you like working with him. When I first met Sean, it was, I think the email was titled Image Comics Saints. And I was just like, huh? <laughs> I just got back from a, as a junior at Rhode Island School of Design. I'd like just gotten back for the second semester and that email popped up. And right off the bat, there was a feeling of Sean wanting to experiment, explore, had an idea in mind. Everything felt really resolved and wanted to bring me in on it, which was really cool from the get-go. And then immediately going to like look him up, like, who am I talking to here? Uh, it was um, like finding the plays that he directed, uh, This American Life that he'd been involved in. At that point, you'd had a independent film that you directed as well, if I'm not mistaken. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Like, I found all this stuff. I was like, wow, this guy just wants to make things. And that was really cool to see. Like, you'd gone from doing all of these projects and storytelling in various areas. You'd done Saints recently, and you were interested in keeping that up. Flash forward to now, and you've worked with Aftershock and Image and working on all these different projects. From the beginning, really cool to meet somebody and want somebody who also wanted to work with me that was so happy to be making things very clearly. So excited to go out there and tell stories. And then the process of working together, like, I think that shows where, like, from the beginning, we were just, there's trust between the two of us that has become a thing that I sort of expect now in relationships with any writer I've worked with since to, like, have that level of trust to where I can completely trust him 
nail it, knock it out of the park, do an awesome script, and then he can trust me to do whatever I do, and then go back and forth, and we can, all the while, it's just like a game of, I don't know, tennis or something between us, and we end up with, like, cool, weird products that neither of us could have made alone. It's just, it's awesome. So, uh, Sean is an incredible collaborator, an incredible writer. That is what he is to me for certain. You are the same team that brought us the few, and we're here today to discuss your latest dystopian tech thriller, Thumbs. Sean, when we talked last summer, that was episode 127, Hayden had just completed issues one and a half. You had just seen the art for that. So, Hayden, you seem to be doing a lot of books at the moment. So did you already <laughs> deliver everything for Thumbs? I mean, how far ahead are you? You must be way ahead. Actually, no. So Thumbs is, um, each issue ranges between 40 to 50 pages. It goes back a while. Uh, what was it, like the summer of 2017-ish? Um, I started on the first issue around then. And between then, leading up to now, I've worked on 10 issues of Wasted Space, five issues of Cold War. Uh, I've made three issues of Mary Shelley Monster Hunter. And various other like issues and stuff that have fallen around that time. So Thumbs has been this thing that's carried on coming up on two years at this point. And I'm a little over halfway through the fourth of five issues right now because each issue is so long and I don't want to ever rush this one at any point. It's like with Wasted Space, I draw a print size. I do the whole thing with one brush and it fits the feeling of the book to me in a way where if I compromise certain things, it leads to a edgy, looser sort of quality that is very fitting to the characters in the story there. Whereas if I took those kinds of shortcuts with Thumbs, it would feel more dishonest for the book. So each issue of Thumbs takes usually like three months to make. If, as long as my schedule works out, then it'll be like 20 pages one month, 20 pages the next month. Uh, and then whatever pages I've got left, plus coloring and lettering in the third month. So long as everything goes well, that's how it goes. A long process, but it leads to a more involved feeling book. So Hayden, you said the longer issues, which I did notice when I read them. Okay, Sancho, what's going on here? You're really uh, putting it to Hayden or <laughs> why the, why the giant-sized books? Well, I mean, the few is giant-sized also. It's similar in, in length to that. I think it's just more, again, of talking about the experience and what you can do with a longer book. I think I'm really interested in in stories that are either very long or very short, <laughs> like what they each can accomplish, where sometimes, you know, I've done some books at other places and there's times where like that 20 to 22 page limit I get to and I just, I sometimes find myself getting a little frustrated in it because I'm like, I want to do more character development, but there's so much plot that I have to get through in these 20 pages that plot is dictating the structure of the book in a way that I'm, I'm not always in love with. Where when you have like 45 to 50 pages, like you really get to live with these characters. And I think you really get to fall in love with them. I think the main character, Thumbs, for a dystopian sci-fi book, I think the amount of emotion that he can elicit is primarily because of the amount of time we get to spend with him. Well, you raise a very good point about feeling like constricted a bit if you try to stay within 20 pages. Because with, again, with your own book through Image... You can do that. And at no point did I feel like something was missing. Because sometimes I'll read a book. I'm like, did I, did I go back and read something? I feel like I missed something right. in, like, in the translation there. Maybe something had to end up on the, quote, cutting room floor because of page count. And that's the worst thing you can do to your property. And for those who don't know about the story, I have a brief summary of it. So it's Adrian Camus. He's a Mark Zuckerberg type. Created an army of tech-obsessed teens who are basically from low-income families to take on the government. And what he did was he gave away these VR games to recruit and build an army. So we have the youngest who are addicted to tech, virtuals, they just gave up on real life. 
Is that correct? You pretty much nailed it. (laughs) Yeah. And then the other half, the advocates, they follow the power or the U.S. government. And they're basically lashing back at the technology group. Thumbs, he is seriously injured on a mission. And that's how the story opens up. He's injured on a mission for Camus that was compromised. And there's a lot that goes on on that first issue, a lot of reveals. So I'm not going to go and spoil that. But is there anything else about the characters in the book Sean and Hayden, that you want to talk about in terms of introduction to give folks some background about the story. The central relationship is between the main character, Thumbs, and his sister, Tabitha, who he's looking for. And that that came per- very much from the moment the few ended. I was just like, I got to work with Hayden again. I think uh, I think it had just been printed. And I turned to Hayden. I was like, you want to do another book? Let's do another book. Let's do another book now. Like, um, <laughs> And I just kind of threw out, I don't remember exactly what I threw out towards Hayden, but I know I was like, I'm playing with a couple of ideas. Hayden was like, yeah, let's do another book. And I was like, I'm playing with a couple of ideas. What ones hit you? And it's funny, Thumbs at the time was the one that was the least like formed in my head and therefore the least, the one I was least excited about. But it had this core relationship between a brother and sister at the center of it. And I remember Hayden writing me back and going like, I'd want to do that one. Like I have siblings and that central relationship I'd like to explore, which actually was a great gift to me because I was thinking of all the macro all the like how does technology play into this and how is it affecting our lives and the moment Hayden wrote that back to me I was like right what's the core familial relationship that we can like really connect to and so then I went away for a little bit started working on it so I think one review has already come out and it was incredibly kind and I think other people who I really respect like a lot of their response to the writing in the book has been about this dystopian tech book but it has this great human heart at the center of it that I wasn't expecting. That's like one of the parts of it that I think I'm most proud of at this point. And with like your other stories, we're dropped into the action right off the bat when the book starts. Now, the reader's going to have everything they need to know about the characters, but not everything's like explained in terms of how everything came to be how it is. And which is fine because everything's not spoon fed to the reader. And if it's not important, then why dwell on that? So it's not so much I'm building a world but you're dropping to the action and you're looking at the relationships among the characters in this world that they find themselves in. Is there a reason why, Sean, you like to write in that narrative style? In other words, not being (laughs) linear, just kind of straight, expected, beginning to end, building everything up, leaving it to the reader to figure out some of the things, if it's even really important, about the background and just getting into the characters. I guess part of it is I, I trust readers a lot. Like I think one of the best lessons I ever got in school, so I've studied writing forever, it feels like. Like I went to grad school for it. I studied in undergrad. You know, there's certain things that you get taught that you should hold on to that you ignore and you suffer for. And then there's other things that you you hear and you're like, I think that's implicitly true and it becomes part of your, your like ethos. And I just remember having a teacher who I really respected say to me, like, every single one of your audience members is as smart as you. Do not think that they're not as smart or know the world. If you're writing sci-fi, don't assume that, like, your audience has not read sci-fi before. You know, so, like, that was something even when we did The Few that we did. And part of it in that is I was like, oh, a dystopian world where, like, there's two separate sides set up against each other. We've seen that story endlessly. I don't feel like I need to go deep into the mythology of that. I think we can understand it through dialogue. I also have the benefit of Hayden. Like, the worlds that he draws visually do a lot of the world building for me i tend to like to like stories i really love and creators filmmakers and people like that that i've really loved a lot of times they've thrown me into worlds as well and then they slow it down as i'm hooked like i get hooked by the adrenaline Mm. and as my adrenaline's going and i'm like ah it's all fights and action suddenly it slows down and and i'm willing to sit through like a three or four page monologue of a character just telling me who they are because i'm like 
yeah, I'm really interested now. Like, you just killed, like, 17 people. Like, who are you? You know, like, I, I just think of people like Tarantino, who I really, I loved when I was growing up. But I also think of characters in some of Philip K. Dick's novels, as well as, like, some of the, like, I still remember the first time I read, like, Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis. And the way that, like, you're brought into action and intrigue and people are already actively doing stuff. And then we learn who they are through their actions. For each of you, from a storytelling standpoint, for Thumbs, are you trying anything new or different this time? Or is it a matter of, hey, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Just keep doing what we've always done well. I think it's definitely possible to go back and read uh, the few and then go into reading Thumbs and see similar stylistic choices and whether it's in paneling or an overall narrative as I'm trying to panel things out and like the scripts that Sean will send me like they don't have page counts or anything written on them like which is funny we were talking earlier about 22 page versus 40 to 50 page and it's funny where every time I get a script from Sean there's always so much content but there's no definitive and a page turn happens here or anything like that which is so liberating because then like going into some there's more potential for trying just weird things like we have sequences where we focus on like the hands of characters for like two whole pages and other things we're trying out where it's not about just telling the story but trying to find ways that it can be told and really involve a person more emotionally like what can a page turn do the panel to panel transition can't do like maybe we just zoom in on a cereal box for a shot or something like that uh, i kind of have a conversation with what sean's doing in the script so this really big conversation is happening between characters. We might be looking at what seems like the least important part of the set or something. So I was trying to play with that so that the text feels like it's talking with the art. But yeah. Well, that's interesting because I noticed, and if you could speak to this, you're using color to illustrate the penetration of tech in the world in a certain way, right? Yes. Uh, using a sort of magenta to highlight any moments of tech or tech-related things within the environment which I think can lead to some interesting stuff where when you're in an environment where tech isn't used commonly, there isn't that much power for it there, then there's this feeling that comes with it, that area, like tech just completely holds no power and the visual effect of that is a more monochrome palette compared to areas where if people are commonly using it or rely on it, then you're bound to see more of it. Uh, I tried to use that from the beginning to create that feeling of going from a place where people rely on it heavily to a place where it's just isn't as much, so they could be very visually apparent. Well, I really like your color palette that you use for all of your stories, and I read this one digitally, and I don't know if this was just a side effect, but to me, it really looked 3D. Like, the word balloons really popped out against the colors you were using. Even some of the memory sequences looked different, like everything was much more 3D. I don't know if that's intentional, but digitally, it looks amazing. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Sean, this story you're addressing frightening things in society today, at least things that we should all be very concerned about, collecting our personal data, the lack of privacy, isolation, and then, of course, escalating tensions over social media. All these things are real, and we're finding a way to address these through a story, but they're tying back to what we're dealing with today, so it's not that far-fetched. I would like your thoughts on each of these issues. Are we giving up too much information by using social media? for too little in return. For example, have you read the terms of use for anything? <laughs> it's like 20 pages, you need a lawyer, and then check the box. And yeah, I've read all that. What's your thoughts on that? Are we giving up too much to be connected through social media? In a lot of ways, it makes me feel like an old man when I say yes, 
<laughs> but, but I am an old man. I mean, I think the problems I have with it, I mean, they're not any different than anybody else's issues or things that have been brought up. I guess the things that really strike me a lot is I think a lot of times we don't understand what the product of social media is, meaning like what's actually being sold. And the product is you. I have relatives who I love to death. I'll have conversations with them at Thanksgiving or family functions, but something will come up. Like a lot of them are very tech connected. They have Facebook pages and all of this. And they'll talk about like, I just added the new Facebook, like they just changed the layout and it really made me mad. And I'm going to leave. If they keep doing that, I'm going to leave. And I'm just like, they don't care. They're not selling you anything. Like you're behaving as if this is an old world customer's always right thing, except you're not the customer. I don't think people realize to what a degree they are are becoming the product and that that's a bigger issue on a philosophical track you know facebook's using you as a product instagram's using you as a product people go like, yeah yeah i get it i understand that but they don't understand or think about like how those behaviors then translate to day-to-day -day activities we start to actually treat ourselves as a product as we're seen as a product right that like our instagram and our facebook's are about portraying image as opposed to truth even as all of our actual data and all of our messages and all of our searches are being sold. And that it allows our employers to become less human. You mentioned applying for your job. I don't know how you did it, but I know most of my friends, they never talk to an HR person. Like they go through like indeed.com, they upload it to a site that is faceless with no person, no humanity interacting with them. And they're waiting to hear back through that. And that to me is indicative of a very scary culture where you no longer have to see other people as human beings. That like you can live in your phone and your own obsession and narcissism. You're also starting to now play into your phone. Meaning like your phone is no longer becoming just a tool that makes your life better. It's becoming this thing that you need to present yourself as a human being. <laughs> that's that's really scary to me. I mean, I think you hit it on. I think the biggest thing that scares me in all the books that I write is what you mentioned with isolation. I think most of the horrific things that happen in our world are connected to human beings who feel isolated and alone and don't know how to behave because of it. Technology scares me at times because I feel like it's so exciting and fun in some ways. Like it, it has that gameplay feel to it all the time that people are becoming isolated without realizing it. Sorry, I'll, I'll jump off this because I, I can talk <laughs> okay. about this forever. But like, um, I was doing some tutoring, like mentoring stuff with a couple of students. I was teaching some theater to some at-risk kids. And I remember talking to this, there was this one kid, Rudy, who I loved. He was so funny. He was very girl crazy, like freshman, sophomore in high school. And so when I, I would drive him home and he would always like talk about this girl he had a crush on. And there was one day I was driving him and he was like, yeah, we had to kind of had like a date last night. I was like, oh, really? Like, that's amazing, man. Like, how'd it go? And he was like, yeah, she was downstairs and I was upstairs and we were just like texting the whole night. Like, we were just writing each other back and forth the whole night. And I just got so sad. I just got like insanely sad hearing that. Like, it's kind of funny and it would make for good sitcom fodder. But there was a deeper thing going on it that I was like, like he's 16, 17. I'm like, he's at the beginning of what this technology is. I have a son who's three and a half. And I'm like, he's going to grow up with it in a way I never did. And in a weird way, the technology, even in like the most carnal, like the most like intimate of things, right? Like trying to have a relationship is now creating a buffer that is making us less connected it worries me i think it's incredibly useful like i can't have the career i have without the tech right like i've never met hayden it's impossible without the internet but at the same time i just look at it especially with my son and i'm just like how can you keep it as a tool and not a lifestyle how do you keep that separation so you don't end up just feeling alone what you just said there i like that a lot how do you keep it as a tool as opposed to 
just an entire lifestyle is something like I know for me things like social media used to be much more prevalent within my like day-to-day life especially like going back to thinking of high school or thinking of uh high school like the moment I could get a Facebook and that was a thing it's like whoa like I've entered into this world and got years to be on there and oh I can connect with all these people that I could know but of course I'm not gonna know like like how does that even work over so much time I've come to the point where it's just and first off, I've got Facebook. I haven't touched it in maybe four years. I can't go near it. But then, like, what I do use as regularly as I can, Twitter, is like, I, mean, I use that to promote my work. I use that to keep in touch with uh, artist friends that maybe I've met at a con or something like that and want to keep in touch with. I have to use it to promote work and to keep myself viable and stuff because it's so important in a freelance career. But the moment I start using it for myself, if I'm like going on and like liking posts or like going through the tirade of emotions that Twitter feed will bring with it, it just becomes so overwhelmingly depressing. <laughs> and, and to the point where it's even anytime I think of posting something, I might have even written it, but I'll look at it and what Sean said, I'm selling myself as a product. Why do people need to know what I'm thinking right now? That's, that's perfectly valid in my own head, which is weird that I even have to have that kind of conversation with myself. Social media is odd. But even that, I think, is a huge thing. Like, I love what Hayden just said in terms of like, why can't it just be valid in my own head? And I think that is a struggle that all of us have that we don't actually admit or talk about, right? It's like the weird thing that social media, especially a thing like Twitter does, and Facebook in a lot of ways too, is like, it allows for an illusion of validity. I can send this out into the world and cause people to have interactions with it. Like I can send out horrible racist or misogynistic stuff and people respond to it. I can send out totally like warm, loving you know, new age quotes and people respond to it. And this is giving me validation. Mm. But I think we all understand though, that it's kind of this false validation that like, I have friends, I have friends who like will post tweets and then like, I'll be with them in public. And they'll be like, I just posted something. Uh, Is it funny? Do you think this is funny? I'm just going to delete it. I don't think it's funny (laughs) enough. And I'm like, this is no way to live, man. This is not a way to do this. And you can also get validation of your own thoughts. And it can actually narrow your perspective if you're just playing to one audience, i.e. preaching to the choir. You only follow things that you're interested in. It's going to kind of keep you within a very narrow perspective. And it can. With social media, I like it because I can stay in touch with people I've met in person. I can get in touch with people I've never met in person, but I've talked to. And even social media, you know, initially I had no connection with it at all. But even for work, I had to know how it worked because it was part of my job. I had to understand marketing promotion. So I had to learn it. And it's funny. It's just like a given these days because my in-laws who are older, they said, well, you know, Chris should be able to find a job. He's good at computers. Oh, no, <laughs> I'm not good at computers. I'm like everybody else. We all use a computer. My father-in-law hasn't worked in like 20 years. So back in the day, there were secretaries to do your typing and certain people use computers. But now, well, we all do it. That's a given. You know, unless you program it, you're not really good at them. But it was hard to understand for an older generation that that's just the world we're in today. And I fear of the kind of world that my kids are going to grow up in where everything is out there on social media. And I hope they use some good judgment about what they follow and what they say. Because I see some people doing things. I'm like, why are you doing that? Because <laughs> it's oh, going to yeah. be there forever. I mean, come on. We all have that. We all have friends that I see them post stuff. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? What are you thinking? What are you drinking? <laughs> yeah. And also what you said, I think is interesting. Where I am in my life, this is the most divisive I've seen our country in a long mm. time. It's very easy to point solely just to political policy. 
I personally look at it a lot of times and I'm like, oh, I think a lot of this is actually because of social media and the internet, like way more. Republican and Democrat policy exchanges have been growing uglier and uglier like my entire life and more split down like the middle of like, I only vote for one thing. When you add the social platforms to it as well, it's a point where I'm like, if you never have to listen to anyone you disagree with, or anyone that you have a predisposed opinion of, like if you never have to interact with them as an actual person, I just don't know how real change and people growing. As I get older, I get more new agey in that sense where I'm like, it's just about growing and learning more and, and trying to become more zen and chill with everyone, with the universe. Like, I look at Twitter and Facebook at times and I'm like, you're quoting the same Fox News and you're quoting the same MSNBC and you're, you're just throwing these at each other and, and you don't have to ever look at anything else. This is so scary to me. But what's also scary, and this is addressed in thumbs, is that some people are so obsessed with their career at the expense of their family, they leave the raising of their children to someone else. And in this book, there's even a technology, Mother Iris, a kind of a nanny app, who takes care of the kids. Are we heading down that path? How close are we getting to a world like that? Because we already have apps that now monitor how much we use our phone so we know how much time we're spending if we want to try to curb that a little bit. You know, then we have ways to track when our kids can't use a tablet, for example, it goes off on a timer rather than us going in and taking it away. It turns off. And then, of course, you know, the yelling begins. What happened? <laughs> are we, but are we, getting, are we getting more in that kind of world now? Are we going to have apps that are going to basically be raising our kids? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's going to be an economic thing, personally. I mean, that thing came out from me having to pay childcare, and childcare costs are astronomical. There was just one day I was I was dropping my son off, and I had a conversation with some friends who can't afford childcare at all, and it just made me think like, that's really horrible. Like, like how would we do this if my wife and I couldn't afford it? And then I was just like, what would happen if an app got created and you could have a babysitter for nine ninety nine? you know, like a month, like the app cost, uh -huh. it would be horrifying. And it wouldn't be something I would ever want to do if I had no other choice. Like, am I going to pretend that I wouldn't actually even think about it? And once you start thinking about it, you can kind of talk yourself into anything that I'd be like, well, it is just an AI babysitter, but <laughs> it's really, it's got a really high Yelp rating and I need to go to work. <laughs> Like, I need to pay for our, our house. So it's either they have an AI babysitter or we don't have a house. Like, which one am I going to choose? So, yeah, I don't think we're very far off from things like that. I'm sure it's already being discussed. And what are your thoughts on VR, virtual reality? Because more and more that's coming out. And there are these Google Glasses, not called that, of course, in the book. But there is something very similar to that, which the younger generation is very connected to literally it's part of them how close are we getting to that being so much of our lives not actually seeing what's in front of us but always seeing it through the filter of some virtual reality where we're seeing additional facts and things around like already now with tv for example i can watch something on streaming and then have pop up who that actor is and things are being filtered through a lens of some kind of virtual reality or some kind of additional information where are we going with this what's going to happen to society if we keep doing this well, i mean there was an interesting interview with elon musk and i know he's a very divisive character he's, he's fascinating for good and bad reasons and he was talking about like we're already becoming cyborgs and that sentence mm. was really interesting to me so he's like your phone is basically attached to your hand already you're like you are literally connecting yourself to technology on a regular basis and obviously VR is an extension of that, but I think it plays into things you're asking about. Like we are starting to create a world where we're always expecting to have a heightened experience. 
that we're always expecting to have a bit more going on than just what I would call the mundaneness of everyday life. Mm. And I don't know what that becomes. If every moment of your life you need constant stimulation and or surprise or like a new world to walk into. Again, I think it goes back to isolation. I think VR is, I don't know if it's needed on a large level. I remember when I was a kid, like you would go to arcades and they would have early versions of what VR would be, right? Like when the Tron movie would come out and you would, this is how I'm dating myself, but like they'd have a video game and you could actually wear goggles and you were in that grid, right? And it was fun. It was fun for like 20 minutes or as long as a quarter would last. But then I would go on with the rest of my day and not really right. think about it. But I also had a lot of things in my life. I was lucky. I had a really good family. I had friends, all of that. I wonder how much of it does come out of isolation. That is, people feel more like lonelier and lonelier. How often do they have to create new worlds and how important it is for them to step into different worlds when the day-to-day life really leaves them without connection to anybody? And actually, uh, thinking about that VR compared to something like AR, an augmented reality situation where... And I remember seeing this years ago. I don't know where the tech is at now. But for there was a, a sort of vision being created for blind people to the point where it was a set of glasses that you could wear, had a little camera as a front, and the device is implemented in a way where they're getting the language of the electrical signals that get sent to the brain that create visual information to the point where they can create kind of like loose, shapes and blocky shapes so that people that could never see before can start to see little things and that technology is just over time getting finer and finer until the goal would be reaching the point where they can nail down that visual uh, language perfectly communicate with the brain and then anybody who has sight issues or can't see or whatever the situation may be will be able to have that and it seems like after that there's a sort of natural progression at least in my mind i think from watching (laughs) sci-fi of seeing how a tech like that could be implemented on a more consumer scale where you can have day-to-day AR. You could just see your entire world filtered through any number of things, things popping up because everything, all the information that could exist, any spectrum, any color or whatever could be beamed straight into your head without any issues. Like if they crack that language for communicating with the brain, then it just seems like an, an easy thing from there. And whether or not it could be harmless use, it could definitely go poor to the point where people are very divided and like what the world would even look like on an individual scale. Ah, the, the ethics of that will come with time, but it's interesting to think. Yeah, that is interesting because like we can create all these things and use them for good and help people or it can go too far and it can kind of backfire. And that's the situation we're always in with anything. I mean, like look at the automobile. Great invention. Gets us across the country now. We can travel more places. But then some people use them as a weapon, driving under the influence or while distracted. We always have that risk with some new technology, some new idea being taken either to use for bad purposes or to some extreme without thinking about the ethical implications of using something like that. It's kind of a scary future. When we talked about the VR, it always reminded me of the Futurama episode where they had the new iPhone and you literally stuck it in your eye. (laughs) (laughs) It's like... There you go, new iPhone. Uh, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Uh, but now we're at the point where we talk about fun stuff about you, learn more about you, called Kicking Back with the Creator. Sean, you've done this, and there's some new questions, too, that you can chime in and participate. 
First question, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Now, Sean, last time we spoke, it was Netflix, comics, of course, exercise when you can, and do some hiking. Hayden, how about you when you're resting and relaxing with your cat? What do you like to do? I got a Marvel Unlimited app. I've uh, been reading Jim Starlin's Warlock run and Captain Marvel run. I've just been going hard on that, catching up on random games to play, and been trying to explore Boston more as the weather gets nice. Like, went fishing the other day, which was good. Try out different restaurants with my partner, stuff like that. Have you done anything uh, new lately, Sean? Are you getting more exercise, getting out there to hike some more, disconnecting from technology for a while, getting some relaxation? Yeah, I joined a basketball league. So I play a lot of basketball, which at my age is, I'm sore a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But I've really, really, I really loved it. I haven't done anything competitive in at least a decade. So yeah, that's been great. That's great. That's hard. I do running and that's difficult, but when you're cutting and running fast, slow, moving, sliding, that's tough on the body. You're you're working the whole body that way. I'm realizing that. Like I woke (laughs) up this morning and I was like, my wife was like, are your legs tired? And I was like, actually, no, my legs feel great, but everything above my belly button is suffering horribly. Oh, man. Next question. We talked about a favorite birthday, and Sean, you had a surprise concert you went to. Hayden, what was your favorite birthday? It could be a great memory. It might not be great, but it's something that you just don't forget, something that stands out in your mind. And there was one time where I think I could say it's necessarily my best, but the one that comes to mind is uh, probably, I think it was in middle school, early high school, and my family had to go to some some distant family member that I've still never met that is really weird. We've never met them. They were in town in Texas, two hours away. And the family was like, oh, we should go meet them. It's like, but it's my birthday. They're like, oh, we got to go meet them. And my brother and I, like my brother stood in solidarity with me. And he was like, nah, come on. Like, let's just stay home. We'll kick it. We'll have a good time. Me and my brother and the rest of my family went off to visit with these people that I don't know. And he and I were just in the garage. Like my brother's at couple years older than me he was about to be going off to college he had a was it like a workbench in the the garage where he would just build random stuff and just the two of us hanging out there stands out in my memory really well in middle school were there posters or pictures on your bedroom wall that you remember putting up sean you had said you had like posters of the broncos elway heavy metal bands hayden what did you have on your bedroom wall when you were a teenager big one that i can i can really distinctly remember is uh, Batman Forever poster. That was the movie that, um, actually that one and Batman and Robin, the most divisive of comic book movies, were the ones that like I grew up with. Like Those were there for me from a very young age. And they pulled me into comics in a way that, I don't know, for some reason nothing else really did. They were just so colorful and big and weird and made me want to know more about everything. So then I ended up getting into comics and such. So those movies still hold a hold an anchor for me. It's funny you mentioned Batman Forever because I was looking at movies in the area and I'm actually going to see Avengers Endgame tomorrow finally managed to avoid all the spoilers and another movie that was showing was for the 80th anniversary of Batman and they were showing Batman Forever that's yeah, the movie they picked here, and it was too far away man I missed it <laughs> <laughs> now this is the hypothetical situation question if you were stuck on a deserted island what is the one book you want to have to read for pleasure and Sean last time we talked you picked The Dirt. <laughs> I did. Great. You did. Motley Crue. <laughs> so true. Any changes to that? Um, 
Would you pick something else? That's one of those things that would change over time for people, what book they would want to have. I might take Please Kill Me by Legs McNeil, just like the history of punk and CBGBs in New York. The movie of The Dirt really disappointed me, but I, lo- I do love that book. How about you, Hayden? Your island book to read for pleasure. Oh, okay. Uh, Grendel Warchild by uh, Matt Wagner. Yeah, it's a weird, if I remember in an interview with him, it was like everything he could think of that would be in an adventure, like vampires and pirates and stuff. You put it all in there and it's great. <laughs> Another hypothetical. If a company were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory? And Sean, you said, well, you'd like to have maybe pouches like some of those X-Men of the 90s <laughs> all over your body. I remember there were some figures that had like this weird thing on their back where like you could string a thing up from one side of the room to the other and they would like zip line across. So if I could have one, that'd be pretty sweet. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. Your beverage of choice, sir, when you're resting and relaxing, Son, you had said iced tea, or if it's something a little harder, whiskey and Coke. Hayden, how about you? Uh, let's see here. Chamomile tea with some honey in it, or uh, cider. Oh, that's good. I've had the chamomile. It really relaxes me. Before bed, it would put me out. Yeah. <laughs> or the whiskey and Coke. Either one will do it, but <laughs> I'll wake up feeling better with the chamomile. <laughs> Now, since we talked about thumbs and technology, here's one about technology for both of you. What technology that we no longer use do you miss the most? It might be outdated, but you're like, you know, that was pretty cool. I weirdly miss the old school answering machine. I liked that people couldn't get a hold of me all the time. And it was always like a present, like coming home and seeing that there was like three messages on the answering machine. Mm -hmm. And then if there was a good one, like a job or like a date or even like a get together with friends. It was like, I don't know. It was like a weird present of just like, okay, number two, I, what's the second message on this? And then it'd be like, you've got the job. And I'd be like, this is amazing. My night is fantastic. For some reason, I miss the weight of it. Waiting to hear if you got news. I actually really enjoy it. Yeah. I just really liked it. Well, like mine's kind of similar, not the answer machine, but just the, the idea of the home phone in general. So, like, my family, they used to have a home phone for the longest time. They just moved up to Wisconsin, and now they're just all cell phones. And I like the idea of, like, being away from home, and, like, if I were to call, I have no idea who's going to pick up. There's, like, this gamble on it. And now if I have to reach the entire household or just anyone in the household, I have to choose a specific person. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, well, who am I going to prioritize here? Like, talk to, like, one of my three younger sisters or my dad or my mom, like, Am I calling one of them too much for this kind of stuff? (laughs) If I call the home, it's blanket. Someone will pick it up. (laughs) My next question, what, in your opinion, is the greatest invention of the 21st century thus far? Most people are probably saying iPhone. It's like a personal computer in your hand. Right. Yeah. That's the obvious choice. I mean, I would also go with, I spend as much time, if not more, just on like streaming television. Mm. The idea of being able to stream TV, sadly, wherever I go has been really useful. A lot of people get teared down from the best, but just like the idea of a movie theater (laughs) is just (laughs) incredible to me. I'm like, wow, I can go here and like incredible sound, a communal experience with all these people here for a story. And especially now with effects and everything being what they are, like that's just such an incredible experience. It's so weird that that actually exists. And my final question, if you could pick any other time, an era, to live in besides this tech-heavy one, which one would it be? 
I know you're thinking about, do they have penicillin during this period? <laughs> the doctors any good? You don't have to go to the barber? You get bloodlet? Yeah, there's all those things to consider because, you know, there's some great things about living now <laughs> that we didn't, don't have to put up with anymore. <laughs> but if you had to pick one that wasn't so tech-heavy, it doesn't have to be way back in the past either. Just yeah. some, It could be in your own lifetime. You're like, I prefer this time better. I keep thinking about just like the 1970s in New York. I think I would have really enjoyed the energy of, you know, I'm a theater guy. I love music. I love punk music. The 70s would have been a time when, like, Robert Wilson would be doing, like, theater performances in Lost. And then you could go see Eric Bogosian and Deborah Harry and Blondie perform at the same punk club. I think I would have really loved that. And as for myself, I'm trying to think. is like, if voluntarily, if someone came to me with the offer, I'd be like, nah, I'll stay here. Uh, if I was going to be corrupted, the place I would be the least. I don't know, opposed to or something. I'd want to be flung into the future like a hundred years. <laughs> Rather be thrown into a mystery than thrown into like like the past where it's like, oh, this is cool, but I also know there's like a lot of shit that I would rather didn't exist. Right. <laughs> I do I do love the idea of someone coming to Aiden with time travel and him just being like, I'm good, man. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor shows up with the TARDIS. You want to go? Nah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> right. Thumbs is coming up June 5th, issue number one, a media issue. So please check that out. You can see some of the topics that are in there, and you hopefully you've had a little more insight into the book listening to this show. Sean and Hayden, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, folks. And coming up next week, I have two guests on the show. It's kind of a theme. I call it Grace and Guts. I have two Kickstarters being talked about next week. Both are returning guests to the show. First, Ron Randall will be joining me to talk about the next installment of Trekker Battlefields featuring Mercy St. Clair. That Kickstarter will begin on May 28th. And this will be the third Trekker Kickstarter for Ron. And did you know among Ron's vast body of work, he also worked on the series Doom Patrol back in 2009. We will talk a bit about that, and my guess that follows that on the same show is Sam Johnson. He's the creator of Geek Girl. He has a new Kickstarter coming up for the trade paperback version of the Crime War arc and issue number five of Geek Girl. It just so happens that Sam's favorite comic book is Doom Patrol. So we're going to talk a bit about the Doom Patrol series and then get caught up on Geek Girl and some of the incentives for backers of the Kickstarter. And now for the usual business, this show is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon Alexa-enabled devices, YouTube, and now on Spotify. The show will be out every other Thursday, beginning the middle of June. I'm already lining up some guests, and I have some new music that is more Vegas-themed when I kick off the new shows from Las Vegas. By the way, please subscribe to the show if you are not, and tell a friend to subscribe, and please rate and review on iTunes. It's still the number one search engine for finding the show in iTunes. And as always, rate and review the other shows you love so much so others can find them as well on iTunes. You can reach me through the new snail mail email, contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to see my Saturday Silver Age and Sunday Bronze Age comics from my collection. Please Share yours and share your memories of your favorite Silver Age and Bronze Age comic books. Thank you for listening to the show this week. That is never taken for granted. Be good to one another and enjoy your comic books that you picked up this week at your local comic shop. Enjoy reading your collection and back issues. And if you've watched Doom Patrol, let me know what you think. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time. Until next time.